How's it going, Jay? Not too bad. A little chilly out here. Yeah. Below freezing last night. So actually, I mean, by Wisconsin standards, you'd consider that balmy probably, but it's out crunching around in the uh, frozen grass and frost on the roofs, and it feels very January-ish. Does it often get below freezing in January? No, no it's, you know, a handful of times a year. Oh, so in theory, where some of that water, all that water you got, you could have a whole bunch of new ice skating opportunities that you don't normally have. Yeah, it's it dips below freezing for about an hour. Oh. And then the sun okay. comes up, so. Okay. Not exactly. I don't. I don't know that I'd want to be on any lakes. There are, you know, very thin puddles at the playground. I've discovered with my daughter are frozen. And they're a lot of fun to stomp on. So that's sure. That's the extent of it. But that's been good. Yeah, we we actually hit a little bit of a pop up cold snap this morning when I got up. It was negative eleven, and with the wind chill, it said negative twenty two. But this is going to be a brief interlude and it's back into the 30s in a couple of days and i walked to get my morning coffee today and it was cold but it wasn't unbearably cold if you bundle up and you have the right gear it's just not really a problem and it's sunny out and that probably makes a difference in how things feel i had a friend who would say so this he was a big outdoorsman worked at rei and uh he was known for saying um, there's no such thing as bad weather. It's only, only bad gear. So yep. I've uh, taken that to heart. I've done some, some camping trips and some major storms and just made sure I was equipped and, you know, it's not a great time, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's communing with nature. And that's the goal. It's communing with nature on nature's terms. And that's, there's no other terms when you Humbling. go out there. That's right. Yeah, human terms don't go very far when you're 10 miles from your car in a massive storm. Yep. There's no green room to make special requests from. Nope. What do we have on the docket for today? Well, we got some listener questions about okay. um, some kind of uh, not craft stuff, but kind of some behind the scenes publishing stuff. Okay. Uh, that even I, you know, having been through this process as an author, didn't have much visibility into and just because I didn't really ask questions. But uh, it's about like international distribution, movie rights, translation rights, light, like all the kind of the fine print. And, and we recognize that this is they're probably not a big portion of our listenership who is who is pouring over a publishing contract right this moment but probably everybody is hoping to be able to do that someday if they haven't already if they aren't planning to be shortly so um just thought it would be good to run through some of that stuff you have founded and run a couple of different publishing companies so you are familiar with the ins and outs of the publishing contract and and all of those things and how they work and what gets sold when to whom and how things work uh kind of from a, a, a geographical standpoint so yeah so what we're yeah. talking about there is subsidiary rights and they are certainly a part 
of the publishing process, and they are certainly a part of the publishing contract. And basically, I'm just doing sort of broad strokes here. When an agent or an author directly are working with the publisher, the publisher is acquiring at first, primarily, the rights to print and publish the book. I'm just going to assume that we've got a an American audience, even if this question, for instance, didn't come in from an American audience. The publisher is acquiring the rights to the exclusive right to produce the book in book form. And that at this point, I'm just going to start with which is paper. So putting it out in hardcover or paperback. And so they say, we're going to give you X amount of money as an advance. And for every copy of the book that sells, we're going to give you a certain percentage of the proceeds at such point that your sales and those percentages of proceeds have recouped the advance. We will then begin to pay you royalties on everything moving forward after that point. And what is that percentage tend to be? What's the range for that? I don't. So some things, uh, one, it depends on what format. So again, right now I'm just talking about print books. The, the royalty rate for paperback and hardcover are typically different. There are two ways of doing the accounting. Historically, royalties were paid based on the cover price of a book. However, publishers actually only get somewhere around 50% of whatever the cover price of a book is because they've extended discounts to distributors or wholesalers, the bookstores themselves. So the actual proceeds, we're just going to call a $10 book. The publisher doesn't get $10 for each copy they sell. They get $5. And again, I'm just using very simple math. The other thing that comes into consideration here is that the publisher can ship a thousand copies of the book to bookstores. But they aren't guaranteed that they're going to get money for what they ship. The publisher doesn't really get paid until a book has sold through and that an end customer has come into a bookstore and purchased the copy and walked out of the store with the book. So they're selling in, which is the amount of books that the publisher ships to bookstores, libraries, etc., the gross number of books that goes out. Then there's sell through, which is how many of those books have now found a forever home because someone has come in and purchased them. What the bookstores don't sell, they send back to the publisher. These are what we are talking about when we say returns. And those books that come back from the bookstore, sometimes those books aren't in pristine condition, and therefore they have to be scrapped, what we call remaindered. And remaindering 
can mean that some large wholesaler who just wants to have a whole bunch of books, they might pay pennies on the dollar for them. They might say, you got 100 damaged books there. We think we can probably sell most of them. We'll give you a nickel per book. And the publisher has to say, it's worth my time and effort to sell these at a nickel per book. Or they'll say, we're just going to halt these. We're just going to throw them away and they'll be recycled. So getting back to royalties, historically, royalties were paid on cover price. So if it's a $10 book and the author's got a 10% royalty, it's a dollar for every copy of the book that sells. And again, I'm just using very basic math. In the last, well, in during my time in publishing, which now is 20 plus years, a number that still kind of doesn't feel real to me, there has been an evolution of how royalties get paid and accounted that has rightfully been pushed back on by agents and authors, and that is to pay royalties based on the net receipts that the publisher receives. So now, instead of paying a 10% royalty on cover price, so $1 for a $10 book, now it's paying royalties based on what the publisher received. So a 10% royalty now goes from being paid off a $10 cover price to a $5 what is received from the publisher, again, 50% discount. So now instead of getting a dollar per book sold as a royalty, the author is getting 50 cents per. Some publishers, and I would suggest that if you run into this situation as an author, that you really question the situation. Some publishers have now also taken to defining net as what they receive from the bookstore, but also they start throwing their costs of production into the mix. So it's like the design, the printing, the shipping, the what they receive from the bookstore. So now instead of paying royalties off $10 cover price or $5 net receipts that the publisher receives now it's like paying royalties based on a dollar because they've thrown all of these other costs into it that an author is essentially subsidizing and that makes it very hard to make much money and especially because publishers who are doing that are typically publishers who aren't going to be moving a lot of books. There isn't going to be a lot of volume. So even if somehow that was a good deal because you were going to sell a million copies of the book, it's more likely you're going to sell dozens of copies of the book. And so you might get your total royalties for a book that you worked on for a long time from the first royalty until it is essentially not making any more money, you might make $20 or $25, which doesn't seem like fair compensation for the labor put in. That would just be my take on that. So the first thing that you're going to be looking at with your contract is what are royalties being paid on? Is it cover price or net 
And if net, you're going to ask the publisher, how are you defining net? And that's an area that has some pushback. Separate of the publishing rights that are being sold for that book, you get into subsidiary rights and you get into things like ebooks, audiobooks, translation, dramatic, film, television, merchandising. All of these are negotiated separately. And before, how, how, before we get into that, how about, so if you get picked up by say a big five publisher, is that for distribution in the, so this is an American author, an American agent. So the way that that's figured out is what is the territory. Mm -hmm. And so uh, most opening salvos from an agent side is they are going to do their best to limit that territory as much as they can because their plan is to make subsequent deals in every territory. And the possibility of selling the rights in, say, the United States, and then selling the French rights, and then selling the German rights and the Italian rights, you can make separate deals there that include an advance, that include um, your own set of terms within that territory. It is incumbent upon the agent and the author to maintain and retain as many rights as possible. So the opening salvo from the agent is going to be, you get to sell the print books in the United States. But the publisher is going to come back and say, well, we want English rights. We want English language rights globally. And we also want the ability to sell the translation rights in countries where English isn't the primary language. So there'll be pushback there. So territory is an issue. Language is an issue. And the so same good, kind of- A good effective agent is going to retain as much of those in the author's camp so that, because those are those all have value. That is, that is the game plan. And it becomes a matter of negotiation. And this is why agents are an important ally to have as an author. It becomes a negotiation. Because if the publisher is saying, we want English rights worldwide, because they plan on also publishing in the UK, and they're going to publish, um, what would you say, would you say the UK? And Canada. Um, they'll say, we need English rights worldwide. And if an agent comes back and says, nope, we're not doing that, then the publisher might say, okay, then you have no deal for English even in the United States. Like, we're just not, it does not make fiscal sense for us to engage in a deal where we don't also have the ability to exploit these rights as a way to make money on the investment that we are going to make in publishing this book. Sure. And at that point, the agent and author can walk away if they want to. But if they say, well, we really want this deal, then they're going to have to negotiate. And then it'll be a matter of what percentage of 
royalties if the publisher is going to produce a, a version that they're selling in England, for instance. Then you have to negotiate what the author is going to get per sale of the book over there. And it could be that another publisher in the in England license the rights from your American publisher. And so they have a deal. And then the agent and author have to get figured into that. And who's going to be taking care of keeping an eye on the accounting, et cetera, is a, is a game that falls to the publisher, the original publisher and the agent. Similar things can happen with film and television, translation. Each of these things, the publisher is going to say, we want a cut of that. And the agent's going to say, no, you're not getting a cut of that. And then they're going to have to figure out, is that a critical stopping point that this deal can't happen because one side is insisting that something has to happen and the other side is unwilling to meet them, to negotiate in a way that both parties can agree to? And that gets tricky because you might say, well, but what, why would a publisher need movie rights? They're making books. Why do they need movie rights? Well, the publisher's looking at it from a business standpoint and saying, if we don't put this book out, the movie isn't probably going to happen. You need this book to be published for this deal to happen. And so we want to take a cut of that. We want to, we want to get involved in that. And this is where historically agents would have said, sorry, that's not happening. But more and more publishers are getting to a point where because they want to pad their bottom line as much as they can, and they see this as a revenue generating opportunity, they'll get in uh, on that. So let's say that an agent says, okay, fine, we'll give you 20% of any movie revenue that comes in. Then there's a question of, who is going to be shopping the rights to the movie based on this book? The publisher would typically, especially if we're talking about a big five publisher, they have a rights department, that this is their job. They have contacts in Hollywood. They have contacts with foreign language publishers. And they will call someone up and say, hey, we've got this great property. This is why this would be good for you. Let's make a deal happen. Agents also have these people. So it's possible that the publisher might go and negotiate these deals, or it's po possible that the agent will go and negotiate these deals. And what people need to keep in mind is that it doesn't do any good to anybody for an agent or an author to hold on to the rights to things if they don't actually have the ability to sell the rights, to license the rights to these properties, it doesn't do sure. you any good to say it's only asset if you can turn it around and get some money for it. Right. And that's a, that's a real consideration to make because I know that in my time in publishing, I've heard of deals that were essentially scuttled because the publisher wanted more, wanted rights, wanted to be able to recognize money on the potential of things like film and television rights. 
but either an agent or an author said, I'm not giving that stuff up. So then the deal doesn't happen. And when the deal doesn't happen, then there's no book, there's no rights, nothing gets sold. And I, you know, there's always a potential that somebody else somewhere down the line might make another offer that is more agreeable to the agent or the author, but it's also possible it never happens. And that's yeah. just an actual bit of mathematics that needs to get figured in. It's a gamble. It, yeah, it's a gamble. How, how do, how do the options work? Or I remember that, but it's like an exclusive, somebody will, yeah. How, how does that whole process work? If you do get some interest from. Sure. So if you get some interest for film, so a production company says, we're interested in turning this book into a movie. But the production company doesn't have a budget already to go uh, with money in the bank to make this movie. They don't have a cast. They don't have any of the particulars figured out. So what they say is, we're going to give you X amount of dollars. And I've known options that were $1 and I know options that have gone for million dollars we're going to give you x amount of dollars for the next 12 months we have the exclusive rights to go try to put together a project based on this book it's a movie so for the next year we're going to go try and drum up interest from producers we're going to try and find a cast we're going to try and get people to sign on to it and we're paying you so that we're the only people who can consider that and shop this around. And then if after a year, they haven't gotten anywhere, they might say, okay, we tried, but now that year is over. And now you as the author agent can try and find someone else who might be interested in making this into a movie and then sell the option rights to them again for a set period of time. Or the production company might say, hey, we're really close. We're going to need another year, so we're going to give you X amount of dollars to lock this up for one more year so we can see if we can go find, finish finding the home for this. And this is not the money that you would actually get for selling the rights to let them turn it into a movie. This is selling them time, basically, to, to do that. So if they do pull together the financing, the cast, they get all their ducks in a row for it. Then you go to negotiate the rights themselves. Right. Yeah. The saying something is being optioned. When I was very young in publishing and we optioned a couple of things, it was very exciting. But what you learn over time is that option is not really anything close to a guarantee that something is going to be turned into a movie. It, it feels like it in the moment and it's very easy to get excited about it and say, Oh, like this is going to become a movie. Well, they're putting up actual money, even if it's a dollar. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and there was a time period when I was at bleak house where we had some award-winning books and we were developing a reputation for doing this crime literary fiction and we would get people calling about film rights we would get different production companies and sometimes it would be you know two dudes in a garage somewhere 
who were aspirational and maybe they've actually done it, but like at that point they were wishing a dream kind of situation. And then I can remember George Clooney's production company invited me to come out and talk to them about a couple of books. George Clooney wasn't there, but I went out to LA and like, I felt like I was a big deal because here I was meeting with people and talking about these books and trying to figure out how I could pitch these things in a way that movie people would be like, yeah, I definitely see the value in that. Let's make that happen. And I was really excited. Nothing came of any of those meetings. Not like nothing, no deals came, no option, no anything. But it felt really cool to be in the room and to be able to say that that's what I was doing. Um, running a publishing company, the and, and especially when you're talking about independent, small and medium-sized presses, like the margins are pretty thin unless you have some sort of anomalous freak bestseller the margins are pretty thin. And so getting excited about the potential to sell movie and film rights, it gets to be a, a regular bit of hopium to be able to be like, well, if we just sell the movie rights to this, it'll turn this book into a bestseller and then we'll become famous and everything will be great. And it, it rarely happens that way. Um, yeah. There's, I still there's... remember with the paper son, Ivan Reitman's company wrote and inquired if about about an option. They didn't actually end up I it was just one inquiry about whether the options were available. And it was like instantly in my head, I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> Ivan, if you're out there listening, still still available. <laughs> Yeah. So that's that's kind of how subsidiary rights work. I mean, that's a, a real easy primer. And if this conversation has created any more questions for people, I will gladly do any kind of follow up answers. But do you, as you, Jay, as a listener, did is there anything that is still unclear or questions that you have or questions that you believe the original asker might still have? I mean, this is an area that I know nothing about. So this is all new information to me. Um, so this was all very educational for me personally. I don't think I would even know what other questions to ask. Um, I mean, I guess the, to, to sum up, it's like every piece of it is, can be, can be a separate deal. And it is in the author's best interest to maximize the value of, of each of those pieces. Um, but if you have somebody offering you something, and it, I guess it's just it's that gamble of whether you can do better on your own or if that the publisher is offering you the best deal for those. I think yeah. for, I mean, I remember but that the audio book rights I think one of the, the the larger pieces of income was from the audiobook rights, if I'm remembering mm -hmm. correctly. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so that was. A I good... still have the multi compact disc 
collection that is yep. the Paper Sun audiobook. Yeah. It's great. They did a great job. And I remember wanting to asking if there was any chance I could do the narration. And you were like, no. No. Yeah, that just, <laughs> that's very rare that that happens. Now, again, if you are self publishing, if you're self publishing or if um, you're with a, a publishing house that is going to take care of the actual production of an audiobook, you might be more likely to do that. But big five publishers, larger publishers just sell those rights to a audiobook company. And that audiobook company already has a stable of professional narrators that they will pull for that kind of thing. I I wanna like when I when I did listen to the audio version, it was so good. I was like, oh that's why. <laughs> That that's why nobody was going to be interested in me doing it. It's because this yeah. guy is an absolute. And I looked him up, and he was like a Broadway act. Like this, he had you know the type of, and he just like had all the. He was able to pronounce words that I had written that I because some some Chinese words in there, and they 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 he nailed it. I was like, oh was, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna butcher those terms. <laughs> yeah, and. I, I want to just kind of like go back to the idea of publishers asking for rights and publishers negotiating contracts in terms that are different historically than they had been that certainly could come across as aggressive and in many cases, predatory. I have the ability, because I have been involved in the direct running of two publishing companies, that was how I made my living, that I can see both sides. I am an, an author first person in life. I am a creative person first in life. I hate the intersection of art and commerce. I hate that it is a negotiating thing. I concede that in large organizations, there are too many people who are counting beans and advising on things like marketing who don't actually fundamentally understand what makes a book special and what is magical about it. And I hate that. I hate that that is the environment, but it is the reality. And those people have saved me on occasion from myself, where I have been wildly enthusiastic about a project that really was probably only going to find an audience of me and 10 other people. And it wasn't ever going to make a lot of money. And it was going to cost money to produce and do things. And so with them asking questions, who is the audience? How do we get this book to them? How do we, how do we edit this book? How do we design this book interior? How do we make a cover design that speaks to our intended audience? How do we get these materials to our salespeople so that they can get excitement and enthusiasm from bookstores? How do we get the right materials to the publicity department? so that they can get the attention of media and news sources that will actually move the needle 
in customer awareness and the larger market, all of these things are sciences that I am not gifted in. And I would say that a lot of it is very subjective. It is subject to the whims of the market, of the people who you're talking to. But all of these people play a critical role in the process. And all of those people need to be compensated for their labor, whether or not the book becomes a bestseller. Doesn't matter if the book didn't become a bestseller, if someone still took the time to do a cover design. There's an office where the lights had to be on. There's a guy in the warehouse who's shipping the books. All of these people are essential cogs in the machine. And, and all of these people deserve... What's that? They're not getting paid percentages of right. the, their and, paid salaries. And I will say too, unapologetically, that to the best of a publisher's ability, it needs to pay a living wage to the people who are doing all of these things. And when corporations are being reckless with their spending on projects that they want to acquire for prestige or because they're trying to cash in on something and those books fail. And then that same organization says that they are unable to pay the editorial staff, the design staff, the money that they need to be able to do their job that's problematic. And this is utopian Ben speaking like there's no there's no cavalry coming. There's no cure to save this. Like this is just this is that intersection of commerce and art that I hate that exists when you are paying seven figure advances to nominally important cultural and social figures. And you think that this tell-all book is going to be some bestseller, or you think that there's a 50-50 chance, so you pay a lot of money for it, and then it flops. There's schadenfreude where I'm like, glad, I'm glad this flopped. But then when the publisher is like, yeah, well, because it flopped, we can't afford to pay, but we're going to have to cut staff, and we're going to have to cut salaries, like, well, then I'm not as happy about it. I just wish that people didn't go chasing after projects that are literary meritless. I'm making a judgment call here in the pursuit of trying to cash in. I'd like to think of publishing as more dignified than other industries. And I'm certainly buying into some myopic version of what publishing should be, not what publishing is. And I, I just know that even when people have the best intentions, it's such a, it's such a gamble. It's such a gamble. I'm so glad I'm getting heart palpitations just thinking about it. I'm so glad that I am not up every night wondering how a book is going to sell or why the New York Times didn't review this book, but they reviewed this other one. Or how excited can I be because this book had initial pre-orders that were great and they had great reviews and we're shipping 10,000 copies of it. 
And like, that's the celebration. But I also know that in three months, half of those books or three quarters of those books might come back to the warehouse. So we didn't actually ever get paid for it. It was just this prolonging of the dream. And that, that took years off my life. I am, I'm convinced and I'm hoping that painting is going to put the years back on that I lost, but um, yeah, it's tough. It's like, I, I see it from a publisher's standpoint. I see it from an author's standpoint. I see it from an agent standpoint and stuff. And that's why, as you and I have talked about, I'm much happier doing what we're doing at Collaborist, working with authors to make the best book possible, working on book proposals, helping learn craft, helping teach craft. But knowing that ultimately I don't have to decide on a book cover, I don't have to worry about who's going to review it, I don't have to worry about how it sells because my involvement is at the construction side of things. And then I can let go. I can let go and cheer people on. I can wish for them the best possible outcome that is in alignment with what they want. But I don't personally lose sleep of whether or not something sells a million copies. And that has been a great gift to me. And I think it's allowed me to be more effective as an editor as a story developer, all of those things, because I'm able to say like, it's not my job to worry about a book cover. And so I'm not going to cloud my brain with that. And I'm going to be able to focus on the book itself. Well, I'm glad you found things that are letting you sleep. And yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for your expertise. Yeah. Do we have anything else for this episode? I think we can call it a wrap. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Collaboracast, first off, thank you. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are here on YouTube and you are watching this, we have been really happy with the level of interaction. Those of you who are choosing to join the discussion, it's great. If you have comments specifically about what I was talking about today, feel free to put those in the comment section and I will do my best to address them. And uh, yeah, thank you for being you, Collaborist. We, we really are thankful that you are out in the world and doing what you're doing. I think that's okay. it. For story. For community. Collabor subsidiary stuff and all that.